So dear Lord God, we thank you and praise you for this um, this time, this season of waiting. Lord, you have made us into an Advent people waiting and longing for your return. And so Lord, teach us um, how to wait with expectation for you. Um, during this time today and over the course of these next four weeks, Lord, let us look to you with joy and gladness when you come again. And thank you, thank you, thank you for your first coming, Lord Jesus, as the baby in Bethlehem. Thank you, Lord, for redeeming us. Um, and Send forth your Holy Spirit now that while we study um, this hymn and your written word, would you, Lord Jesus Christ, be manifest in our midst, Emmanuel, that you are. Um, We thank you and praise you and we ask this in your name. Amen. So we are looking at, again, for my series, I don't like to put part one of four again because they don't want you to feel bad if you're not here. We're probably, we'll probably grow over the course of four weeks. That's what happened last time. So you, the, the few, the chosen, will be able to see if you hang in there. You'll see other people. But because um, it, they really are standalones, you know. And so I decided to look at three Advent hymns. And then I was going to look at a fourth Advent hymn. And Gil said, oh, but would you look at a Christmas carol for the fourth week of Advent? And I said, yes, of course. I'd be glad to. So, um So we're looking at Lo, He Comes with Clouds Descending today. Next week, we'll look at Hark, A Thrilling Voice is Sounding, which is a lesser-known hymn, a very early hymn um, that we have in our hymnal. And that one we'll actually be singing next Sunday as a part of our Lessons and Carols service. Um, So it'll be a great one because we we don't really talk about it very much. We don't sing it that often, but it's beautiful. The words are beautiful. The music is beautiful. The theology is rich and meaningful. The third Sunday, we'll look at Come, um, Thou Long-Expected Jesus. Jesus, which we sang today as well, which is another Charles Wesley hymn. But today we're looking at, and then the third week we'll look at O Little Town of Bethlehem, Phillips Brooks, a good Episcopalian. So, um, but today we're looking at Lo, He Comes with Clouds Descending. And um, Lo, He Comes with Clouds Descending was written in the 18th century. It was we think that the words the words were probably written by Charles Wesley, although some people say that John Senek, a much lesser known hymn writer and actually a companion of John Wesley's, wrote some of it or part of it or generated the idea for it. What Children of the Heavenly King? That's his good, his well-known one. Yes, indeed. And some people say that he wrote this one, but other sources. I just didn't delve into them too much because I thought, you know, I'm not going to geek out on trying to figure out who actually wrote it. Let's just look at the text itself because the text itself is so beautiful. But it appears as though John Seneca at least gave some of the ideas, and so as they were friends and companions and colleagues as pastors, these ideas of waiting and watching and expecting the Lord to come again were ideas that were um, prevalent for them both. So they were sharing them and preaching that to their congregations and the other people that they were around. Okay, and then the music. See, I really like the other melody, the one we didn't sing today. And I actually haven't listened to this one all the way through, so I'm not sure which one this is. But the melody, this is the melody I grew up singing, is the... um, Lo, he comes with that one. Yeah. Instead of the one we sang today, they're both beautiful. And did you notice the descant at the end of the one we sang today? I have a feeling that's why we as a parish always sing that one because we have such a beautiful choir who can sing that descant over us, sing the harmony as well as the melody. Um, so I'm grateful for that. But I do also like the other one. Um, so now that you have that piece of paper with the hymn in front of you, let's. we won't sing it. But as you hear the choir singing it in this clip, listen to the words again and read the words again, and that will help you as we start to go into it. Mm-hmm. 
use the Arn melody for that. No, not that one. the different words. beautiful I find this tune particularly worshipful and that's why I'm on a whim just stopping it halfway through because I think we need to talk about the first half before we go on and hear the second two ver- or the verses three and four looking at this first verse here let me make it bigger for you do you see um, lo he comes with clouds descending once for our salvation slain, or as that version said, the original Wesley version seems to have been once for favored sinners slain, which has an idea of grace and election, a particularity of the death of Jesus Christ rather than the universality of Jesus' death. Um, And it would appear as though, I don't want to assume it's our redactors in the 1982 hymnal, but I I wouldn't be surprised if they were the ones who just tweaked it so that it didn't look at election, but rather looked more towards the universal salvation. We can talk about that. (laughs) Um, So looking first at this phrase, lo, he comes with clouds descending. Where does this idea of Jesus 
come from in scripture of him coming with the clouds well in um, Acts chapter 1 verse uh, verse 11 I believe it is Jesus has ascended into heaven and the disciples are standing (laughs) jaws probably dropped amazed that Jesus was just whisked away on the clouds and he disappeared from their sight and two angels come and say what are you doing stop looking at stop looking at the sky he'll come back from the sky on the clouds just like the way he went he'll come back to you but go back into Jerusalem go and wait for the Holy Spirit and go and get to work the church has work to do in Jesus's absence by the power of the Holy Spirit but that I that Jesus in his ascension and in his return the way he went and the way he will come back he is fulfilling this prophecy that Daniel had on this prophecy this vision that Daniel had um, and we see it, um, I'm going to go to this one first. We see it here in Daniel chapter 7, verses 9 through 10, and then again, I skipped over some stuff that you can go back and look at, and then 13 and 14. Does someone want to read this who can see it well, read it loud enough for us all to hear? And this is a vision that Daniel himself is having of what's going on in heaven. friends or fights, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair on his head was pure wool. His His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days, and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. How do you see that this is behind... Um, Jesus's ascension and return and especially behind um, Charles Wesley's first verse. Do you see that? There's a throne and the Ancient of Days, Yahweh himself, is there seated on the throne in heaven. He's having a vision of heaven but having a vision of judgment coming. Right? There are, um, these are la- this is the language of theophany. about the throne fiery flames and wheels like Ezekiel saw wheels surrounding the throne Um, and there are thousands thousands serving him and 10,000 times 10,000 standing before him and that's exactly what Charles Wesley says thousand thousand saints attending and there's some um, overlap in scripture between whether or not it's saints or angels it appears to be both surrounding the throne of the Lord God and the court, it's a, it's a throne room. And the throne room, remember, in those days, in the ancient world, there was no division of the three branches of government. There's no executive, legislative, and judicial branch of, branch of government. They are all combined in the king. The king is the one who makes decisions, who executes them, um, and enforces them by his power, and then judges when those laws have been broken. So the king is the judge. And he's seated on his throne, his judgment seat, and those come before him to receive judgments. 
with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and presented was presented before him. This is a strange thing to see because what we see is the son of man is not the same as the ancient of days. The son of man is coming to the throne of God, is being presented before the throne of God, and what's assumed is that he is deemed right he is righteous. He is worthy. He is the one worthy to be given the kingdom. The king is giving the kingdom to one who's the son of man. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. And it's a kingdom that is not over just one people, Israel, but over all the peoples of the earth. And it's not just a kingdom for a time, but it is an eternal kingdom, an everlasting kingdom that shall not be destroyed, that shall not pass away. So one of the things that Jesus did that was a little bit different and that um, the church understood differently about this vision, well, first of all, Jesus, remember how in the Gospels he calls himself the Son of Man, doesn't he? That was not necessarily a title. It was a title that the Israelites knew about basically from this passage. It's used in this passage and it's used in Ezekiel of Ezekiel or of the angel that appears to Ezekiel, one like a son of man. But um, but this is a title that Jesus appropriates for himself because he understands himself to be this righteous one, this one who will be given the kingdom. And indeed, when he is before the Sanhedrin at the the day before his death, the evening, the, you know, the middle of the night before he was crucified, they ask him, and in Mark chapter 14, we see the high priest asking him, "Are you the Christ? Are you the Messiah?" the son of the blessed. And Jesus' response is, yes, I am. And not only am I, but I am associated with God. I am, he says, and you will see the son of man, which was a messianic title, which they understood. But then he says something, the son, you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power. That's a sign of equality with God. You will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Jesus understands himself not just to be going before the Father in his throne, but also coming back with the authority of the Father as equal with the Father coming back to earth to judge. And it's that statement that causes the high priest in Mark's gospel to tear his robe and say, blasphemy, do we need to hear anything more? Because Jesus is making himself equal to God. Um, he is claiming to be equal to God. Well, he has, he left um, on clouds of uh, to heaven when he ascended and he will return with with thousand thousand saints attending the New Testament understands that phrase to be about Jesus that um, that Jesus will come again it says Paul says in first Thessalonians with all his saints attended by the holy ones the holy ones are the saints of God and it's that first Thessalonians 4 for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command with the archangels call and with the sound of the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first then we who are alive who are left we shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air so we shall always be with the Lord. They were afraid that those who had died in the Lord would be separated upon the Lord's return. And Paul is reassuring them, no, we'll all be with Jesus together and he will come back. You haven't missed it. 
don't worry. Um, So Jesus will return in great power and great glory. There's something different about this coming, his second coming. When you look at our beautiful nave, do you ever look up and look at the stained glass on either side of the altar? You'll see on the one side we have Jesus' first coming, his first advent as a baby in Bethlehem. You see Mary there holding him. Um, Jesus' first coming. And then on the right-hand side, you see Jesus' second coming on the clouds with glory. And one of my favorite things about that particular window is how um, the stained glass artist made the clouds purple for Advent. Purple clouds. Jesus coming on purple storm clouds. He will return. He came in weakness as a baby, as a king, um, not just a king born in a palace, but a king born in poverty, a king born in a stable, a king born in loneliness, taking upon himself all the fragility of what it means to be human. Um, And remember, the three kings come looking for him. They expect him to be in a palace, and they have to be redirected to the stable. The star guides them to the stable. Um, They're redirected away from Herod. Um, This is not a king who came first in pomp and triumph, but came in lowliness and weakness, so that we who are lowly and weak um, would be made strong, so that we would know that he has identified with all of our weakness, not just our physical weakness and our humanity, our fragility, but also with our sin our weakness in our sin, when we see ourselves doing the same thing over and over again, or when we are confronted by an outward sin that we see and we say, oh my goodness, I guess I really am a sinner. I guess it really is in my heart. The sins in our heart are really the ones that I think God cares the most about. The sins of pride, of arrogance, of disbelief of um, distrust, distrusting him. Those are the ones, they all grieve him, but those are there all the time. We're just not as aware of them as we are when they erupt into very visible outward sins. The inward sins are the ones that have taken root, and he exposes them for what they are. He exposes them gently because he comes with forgiveness. He knows our weakness, and then he forgives us because of his death. And that's that one line. I love that one line that it's, Um, Yes, he's once for our salvation slain, but once for favored sinners slain. Um, We who are sinners have been extended grace because of Jesus. And we're the ones who say, we need grace. We need forgiveness. We look to Jesus and say, yes, let your cross be for me. Um, Yes, it says in John's Gospel that um, God so loved the world, the whole world, that he sent his son. But some say, no, thanks, we're all set. We don't need Jesus. We don't need a savior. We've got it all on our own. And that's what we see in the next verse. Um, During Jesus' earthly ministry and his earthly life, there were those who rejected him and said, you're not who you say you are. You must be a blasphemer. You have to die. Or, um, we're all set. We don't need you. We don't want you to be our Lord. Um, We're all fine. There's no problem here. Move along. And that's what um, we heard from last Sunday in the sermon about the sheep and the goats. There's that tenderness, that weakness within the sheep of saying, yes, I need a Savior. Yes, I need a shepherd. Um, And this is the second verse. talks about how 
Every eye shall now behold him. There's this revealing, this revelation upon Jesus' return. During his earthly ministry, people did not necessarily see him as he was, didn't see him for the king and the judge eternal that he is. And um, so there's that rejection of him. But then there's also throughout this life, how many of us have people in our lives with our friends or family or coworkers who don't believe in Jesus? And even um, in that disbelieving of Jesus, um, don't see him for who he is as the true Messiah, as the Savior, as the one to whom all of our worship is due, all of our allegiance is due. Well, at the end, and that's one of the reasons you talk, we hear about Revelation, the book of Revelation that talks about the end, this eschatology um, that Craig talked about in his sermon. Eschatology is this big fancy word based on the Greek word for the last things, the study of the last things, the end, when it feels like the end of the world or when it is the end of the world, when it will be the end of the world, there will be this revealing, this apocalypse. And that word apocalypse means revealing. And that's what we see in the book of Revelation. It's like there's a veil that's lifted and the Um, John the Evangelist sees by the power of the Holy Spirit into what's going on in heaven and what will happen at the end. At the end, it will be revealed to the whole wide world who Jesus is, that he is the true Messiah. In Matthew's Gospel, Jesus talks about this fact that he is the true Messiah. He says in chapter 24, See that no one leads you astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, the Messiah, and they will lead many astray. And then he goes on to say at the end of chapter 24 in verse 23 about this, um, those false Christs, those false messiahs. He says, If anyone says to you, Look, here is the Christ, or there he is, Do not believe it, for false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders, so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. This is just a little thought about false Christs. You know, if you've ever taken any kind of Bible study on Revelation or heard anyone preach or teach about Revelation, um, the book of Revelation, there's a lot of mention of Antichrist in there as though it might be one person, one diabolical arch enemy of Jesus Christ. And we don't know. We will wait and see. There's a lot of revelation is not to be interpreted, literally is not to be interpreted in a one-to-one correlation. We cannot put a formula on it and understand it. But the spirit of antichrist is all throughout our world during this life, during this phase between Jesus' first coming and his second coming, and even before that. Because this idea of something that is claiming to be Lord, but is not, Isn't that so pernicious? We hear that all the time. You turn on the TV. This is what every single ad on TV says. And I don't know about you, but on my TV, I actually don't watch TV. I have it on Hulu, which makes me even madder because I clearly pay for Hulu. And then they put ads on it, just like cable TV. You pay for it, and they put the ads on. Well, you should not have to see the ads if you're paying for it. That is my firm belief. But so you even on Hulu, you're listening, you're watching something, and then suddenly the ad comes on, and they're so bad. They make the volume pump up, don't they, for the ads, so that if you're lulled into your, you know, Whatever you're watching, suddenly you're roused, you're awake, you're paying attention in a different way. They've caught your attention. And usually they're trying to sell you something based on this belief that you just need one more. You just need that thing. I just need that one thing 
then I'll be fine. I'll just need that face cream for ladies, you know, and then I'll look like her, even though she's 30 years younger than me. I will look like her if I have that. I need that car, and then I'll be successful. Every, a whole world will see I've made it in the world. I'm successful. Um, just think about that. Anytime you see a commercial, it's trying to sell this image of yourself. It's saying you need this to be a better person. Um, and it's a lie. That's a false messiah because it's a false savior. It's something that can save us from ourselves as we are right now, that can make us a better us. All we have to do is sign on the dotted line, pay a little bit, go to the store and buy this more expensive product. And that, I, it's so, I think of it as being so evil because we're so deceived into thinking, well, yes, I do need that. There's this um, movie that makes me laugh all the time, and I seem to have this penchant for talking about the Bible and then talking about these really um, funny mov movies that I think are funny but are also a little bit low class. Let's just say that. So, <laughs> but there's this movie called The Jerk, and it's a Steve Martin movie. And there's this great scene at the end. What's that? Do you know where? I know, I know. The fact that I'm talking about The Jerk is funny. I hope so. Well, but the, I don't know if you remember the scene. He and his wife have had this horribly funny, it's horrible, it's horrible because they're arguing, but it's very funny in the sense that he goes, I don't need you. I don't need anything. And then he pauses for a minute and he says, I don't need you. I don't need anything except this ashtray. <laughs> and he starts to pick up something from their room, from their house, from their successful life. This ashtray is all I need. But then you see him walking around the house and he ends up picking up, I don't need you. I don't need anything except this ashtray and this telephone and this, <laughs> and he's just in his sorrow and in his distress, he's clinging to all of these things that he says he doesn't need, but that he feels like he just needs this little thing, and it's completely irrational, that he would need something like that, that that would be the one thing he needs. Well, we, in our blindness, we can't see that the one things that we think we need really are that irrational. They cannot save us. They are false messiahs. Well, the true messiah will be revealed to all at the end. And we, um, thank goodness, by the power of the Holy Spirit, God has revealed him to us now in this life so we can have that consolation of knowing that all of our hopes can truly be set on something, someone. Someone truly can um, give us all that we really need in this life and the next, and that's Jesus Christ. Um, so there's this... Um, good thing that every eye will behold him and yet it's a, a sorrowful thing because there's this sorrow about not having realized who he was. Um, this sorrow, disbelievers in Jesus will be dismayed at his second coming. Every eye shall now behold him robed in dreadful majesty. He will be revealed for the king and judge that he is. Those who set at naught and sold him Remember that Judah sold him for 30 pieces of silver, pierced and nailed him to the tree, deeply wailing, deeply wailing, deeply wailing, shall the true Messiah see. Gazing on the pierced one is um, this, there's this verse in Revelation that alludes to this piercing of Jesus. And in, um, in 
the Gospels, they understand, the early church understood Jesus' crucifixion in the light of Psalm 22. And if you ever have a moment to just read through Psalm 22, it is so beautiful and it alludes to Jesus' crucifixion. And they understood him to have been um, pierced. And there it talks about him being pierced. And, um, and it's also a prophecy from Zechariah 12. Um, and Zechariah is, you know, the Lord is saying through Zechariah, and I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. No one really knows what Zechariah meant originally. But what we know is that in the first century, they understood that Jesus was the one on whom, uh, the one who had been pierced because of his cross, his, the nails piercing his hands, his feet, and the spear piercing, piercing his side. And that there's this idea of seeing Jesus as he will gaze on the one. Jesus, when he returns in his resurrected body, he still bears the wounds, the scars from the crucifixion. Remember that the disciples um, see them. He shows them to them, and that's how they know that he really is Jesus. And in Revelation, it says that when Jesus comes with the clouds, in Revelation 1 and 7, every eye will see him, even those who pierced him and rejected him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. This wailing is this grief, grief to the heart, grief um, and mourning for what's been done, grief and mourning for not seeing him for who he is. Um, and then we go in this next verse. Um, should we listen to it here? Let's sure. listen to it. This next verse, we're going to talk again about these wounds. Uh, this? this is Litchfield Cathedral. Sorry, I didn't tell you. It's beautiful, right?
hear that? Anything you notice? There's a theme that's carried over from the last verse to this verse, and that is this idea of the wounds of Jesus Christ. Upon seeing his wounds and seeing him in his glory, those who disbelieve or have disbelieved, um, it's not clear what their state at they will at the moment that they see Jesus for who he really is, except that there's mourning, grieving, and wailing. Um, but they see his wounds they know him for the earthly jesus they know him now also in his heavenly majesty revealed for who he is as the king as the judge the true messiah there's this um wailing upon seeing the wounds but for those believers those who've been healed um forgiven and healed those of us who believe in jesus this gazing upon his wounds is the cause for worship and then in the fourth verse he goes into this worship in the kingdom how the kingdom will be all about worshiping the king um the language is so beautiful with what rapture gaze we on those glorious scars the jesus is the lamb who was slain he was pierced for our transgressions he was crushed for our iniquities upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace and with his wounds we are healed all we like sheep have gone astray we have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. In Isaiah's suffering servant song here, Jesus identifies himself not just with the Son of Man coming in power to reign, but also in his earthly ministry, he, he identified himself with this suffering servant. And his disciples didn't get it until after his resurrection by the power of the Holy Spirit. Then they understood, oh, you were pierced for our transgressions. So we could receive forgiveness of sins and then upon dealing with sin then death also is conquered and we have everlasting life and so you see in revelation too that jesus is the lamb who was slain that perfect offering and he's also the one who has begun his reign and this is john his vision in um, revelation i looked and i heard around the throne and the I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriad of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and glory and honor and blessing. And then every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them, saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever and they fall down and worship and this is the vision that john sees in heaven this is not the vision at the end this is what's going on right now in heaven while we're on earth they are worshiping jesus he is the one who's worthy he is the lamb who was slain he has begun his reign and so um one more thing about that too there's also in revelation chapter 7 there's a moment where um the there's a multitude surrounding the throne and John sees them and he asks the angel who's with him, who are these? Who are these? And this has to do with the believers healed by his wounds. And the angel answers him. He sees a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes, standing before the throne and before the lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, crying out with a loud voice, 
Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And they fall on their faces and worship God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. And so one of the elders asks John, Who are these? Clearly a teaching question, because the elder knows, and John doesn't know. And who are these clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? And John replies to him, Sir, you know. It's clearly a teaching question. And then the elder goes on to say, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Isn't that an image? They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Anyone who's ever done laundry knows that that's a miracle. That's a laundry (laughs) miracle right there. The first time I ever learned Greek, uh, that we had that phrase as a phrase that we had to translate. And for the first time it hit me, the white and the blood, the red blood of the Lamb washes those robes, robes white as snow. We, the saints, we who believe in Jesus, we are healed by his wounds, our sins are forgiven, and we are cleansed. Our righteousness is spotless because it's the righteousness of the spotless Lamb of God by his blood. And that is the reason, that is the cause for our endless worship. Out of thanksgiving, we worship him now in this earthly life, and we will worship him eternally. And this, in chapter 7, the elder goes on to say about those who have washed their robes white in the red blood of the Lamb, They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Um, he is our provider, our good shepherd, not only for our spiritual needs, but for everything we could ever need. And so there's this um, protection and provision eternally in this life and then perfected for all eternity. Um, And so this final verse, Yea, amen, let all adore thee, uh, high on thine eternal throne. Savior, take the power and the glory, claim the kingdom for thine own. This is a prayer on our behalf, uh, on our part, on the part of those who believe in Jesus. It's a prayer saying, Come, Lord Jesus, Maranatha, which is the um, word in, um, that they said, in, and I think it's Aramaic, that they said in the first century church, they would say Maranatha, and that meant, Come, Lord, come, Lord Jesus, Maranatha, Lord Jesus. Come, let everyone know that you are our Savior, and that you are Lord and King and God. And then at the coming of Jesus, there's this sense that not only is sin dealt with, not only is death a mere memory, but so too the suffering is wiped out. All the suffering of this life, there's not one of us who has not (coughs) suffered. All of the suffering is but a distant memory. And this is what um, John also sees in um, his revelation. He sees this new Jerusalem descending from heaven. He sees in that um, new Jerusalem, the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street also. On either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, 
and they will reign forever and ever. There's this, the tears will be wiped away. There will be no more suffering. There's this idea, too, that as Jesus is enthroned as king and lord, no longer will evil have any sway. There's this thing about judgment. Judgment is, feels harsh, but what it is is it's an expunging of suffering from our midst that we, as we cause suffering to others, will no longer be able to cause suffering to others because sin will be no more. Others, as they cause suffering, as we see suffering in the world, that suffering will be wiped out once and for all. And so this is cause for endless exaltation, endless worshiping, and the kingdom of God will be made manifest in it, and Jesus Christ will reign forever and ever. And that's what Paul says in um, Revelation 11, and it's this coming kingdom um, where God is king, where Jesus is Lord, no suffering, no sin, no death ever again is this cause for endless exaltation. With what rapture? Um, when Jesus comes to reign, we will would adore him once and for all, for all eternity. So let's pray, and then you can ask me any question. So, Lord Jesus, we thank you. Thank you for um, your death for us. Thank you for making us clean by the blood of your cross, um, for washing us in your blood and giving us your own righteousness. And so even now, Lord, as we wait for your return, as we wait for the world to be the way it ought to be, we know that um, your death and your resurrection is our sure and certain sign that you will return and that all will be finally made right, even as you have made us right with your Father by your blood. So we give you thanks and praise. We worship you. And we um, ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.